in your money today. Karen Wright takes a look at what investors need to know about the voluntary carbon market. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. In your money today, I'm going to find out about an area of the market that many of us may not know much about. That's the voluntary carbon market. I'm joined by an expert in the field who can hopefully explain it all. And that's Rich Gilmore, CEO of Carbon Growth Partners. Thanks for joining me today, Rich. Karen, it's my great pleasure. First off, can you explain what the voluntary carbon market is and how investors can get involved with it? Yeah, sure. I might start with what a carbon credit is. It's the instrument that is traded in the voluntary carbon market. So a carbon credit is a certificate that represents the proven reduction or removal of one tonne of greenhouse gas from the atmosphere. And those certificates, typically known as carbon credits, are tradable between entities. So they're tradable between, say, a project that has delivered those proven emission reductions. It could be a wind farm in India. It could be forest protection or restoration in in South America. And those credits are issued to that project on the basis of those proven emissions reductions, and they can be traded to someone else. For example, a company that wants to reduce its net emissions. So every company in the world needs to reduce their emissions, and they do so through a combination of reducing their internal emissions, buying clean power instead of fossil fuel power. And those emissions that are difficult to reduce internally or costly can be reduced by investments in projects in the carbon market. So a carbon credit is traded for a number of purposes, usually for a company to meet a net emissions reduction claim, or they can be invested in like companies like ours. They're a tradable asset, and there are a number of investment managers in the market now. Carbon Growth Partners is one of those that invests in both projects that generate carbon credits and in the carbon credits themselves with the investment thesis that the value of those credits will appreciate over time. So let's look a little bit around legislation on this market. So are there any specific changes you're expecting in the Asia-Pacific region this year? And what could that mean for the development of the market? Well, as anyone listening to this program from Asia will know, and many outside Asia will know, Asia is where most of the action needs to happen on dealing with climate change. It's where all the people are, it's where all the emissions are, it's where all the biodiversity is. And so what we're seeing increasingly is the convergence of what you referred to earlier as the voluntary carbon market and the compliance or regulated markets. We don't typically think of it as a voluntary carbon market because emissions reductions, in our view, aren't voluntary. If you're a major company or even a family-owned company like many of those in Asia, you have a commercial, financial and ethical obligation to reduce your emissions. And the carbon market is an efficient and cost-effective way of doing that. But nonetheless, it's typically referred to as the voluntary carbon market because companies that are using that market are doing so in addition to any regulatory obligations that they have. What we're seeing is this increasing convergence of the voluntary and compliance markets. And I might illustrate it with an example. Singapore is an example. So Singapore has a national commitment, like every country in the world, to reduce its emissions. And part of the way it can do that, Singapore is a wealthy country, but it is a low-lying island state. It's very small, and it has very limited capacity to reduce emissions in Singapore. It's wholly dependent on imports of, of energy, food and water, has very limited land base to be able to invest in projects that will reduce emissions. So it's going to have to buy offsets, carbon credits from other, from other countries. So it set up a carbon tax. That comes into effect this year and companies who are captured by that carbon tax can either choose to pay the tax or they can buy credits in an equivalent amount in the voluntary carbon market and use those to meet part of their tax obligation. So although the Singaporean government is not regulating the voluntary carbon market per se, 
It's regulating how companies in Singapore participate in that market and also participate in their national policy scheme. And you're seeing similar developments in India, in Japan, in Korea, in China, where you've got the voluntary carbon market credits playing a role to meet national commitments under what's called the Paris Agreement. So let's delve a little bit more in that. We're a show based in Hong Kong. So is there anything specific for Hong Kong or mainland China that you're looking towards? Yeah, mainland China is obviously the largest polluter by far globally, but it also has restarted its domestic carbon market and it'll be the world's largest carbon market when it gets to scale. Interestingly, and and that will integrate voluntary carbon markets, China was by far the largest participant in the previous iteration of the global carbon market called the Clean Development Mechanism, which generated carbon credits through projects that reduced emissions. It could be traded between countries. China will get to scale and again become probably the largest carbon market globally with its domestic market, but it will also be an important source of demand for the international carbon markets. Where companies, provinces in China can't reduce their emissions domestically, they're going to have to buy credits from other countries. And specifically in Hong Kong, we've seen Hong Kong Stock Exchange set up a specific carbon exchange in 2023. We were one of the first companies to be onboarded. We were there at the launch. And that's recognising in Hong Kong, like in Singapore and elsewhere in Asia, that carbon credits are a genuine commodity these days that should be regulated. They're going to get to scale and they're trying to provide more frictionless access to investors because not everyone has the expertise that Carbon Growth Partners has to go and find a project and buy the credits or know a broker. Just go to the Hong Kong exchange and then you can transact credits in the same way that you would transact listed equities. So are there any specific areas you would urge caution where the voluntary carbon market is concerned? It sounds like, you know, looking for these legitimate products is is obviously the, the sensible way to go. This is a relatively small market still. It's not a new market. The carbon market has been going for 25 years in one form or another, but it's relatively new to most investors. And one thing we would urge caution around is that carbon credits at the moment are not a commodity in the way that gold is, where there's a single you know, price for gold. It's an element. There's no real discretion in the makeup of that commodity. It's much more like coal or oil, ironically enough, in which there are different qualities and attributes that buyers look for when they're buying oil or coal. It might be moisture content, could be sulfur content, could be energy content. And carbon credits have different attributes as well, based on when the project was undertaken, where it was undertaken, the sort of engagement that it had with local communities and host countries that mean that carbon credits of different types and geographies and ages have different values. And so it's really important for new investors in the market in particular to understand what are the drivers of those different values, because you're much more investing in complex OTC commodity like coal than you are exchange-traded commodity like gold. One last question. Do you think there are any economies that stand to benefit from this? Because it's things like you saying that you can sell your carbon credits if you, say, are a wind farm in a place like India. Now, who stands to benefit from being able to trade this way? That's a great question. And actually, it's a little bit analogous from other commodities historically. So if you think about the wealth of the Western North, it's kind of driven by the exploitation of resources in the East and South the oil and minerals and energy from sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And it's those countries today that have all the carbon richness that the developing countries of the north and west are going to be looking for to meet their net emissions reductions goals. So if you think of a country like the DRC in Africa or Senegal, massive areas of intact forest, 
massive abundant resources of of hydropower and solar and wind that can now be exported to countries not only to meet the economic development goals of those buyer countries like Europe and the US and China, but to mitigate the negative climate impact of that economic growth. And so it actually turns out that the poorest countries in the world, those are the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, also stand to be some of the biggest beneficiaries of the investments in dealing with climate change because they have such abundant natural resources in the same way that they have and have had historically abundant energy and mineral resources. Fascinating. Great to be able to speak to you today. That's Rich Gilmore, the CEO of Carbon Growth Partners.